This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelor. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Hello, everyone. We are going to get into it today on the podcast. If you have any little ones around, this is probably one to put the headphones on for because we're going to talk all about sex. And I'm really excited for this conversation because I think that it's a topic that more and more people are diving into. And I actually just saw before coming on this a little clip from an interview that Glennon Doyle and her partner had done, they were having a conversation around woman's pleasure and how it's been such a taboo topic that nobody's been talking about forever and that we're finally starting to see it become more of a priority and something that isn't shrouded in so much shame. So I'm so excited to have today's guest here with me. Dr. Carolyn Klein is a registered psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of British Columbia. She is the co-founder and co-director of the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy in Vancouver, which is a center that's made up of a team of over 18 psychologists, clinical counselors, and PhD level students. She has spent years talking to partners, couples, individuals about their relationship with sex and intimacy. And as she says on the website, has heard it almost all at this point. So she's really passionate about sort of breaking down this idea that we're alone in our own sexual struggles and helping us find more joy and pleasure. And I mean, overcoming anxiety and shame in this area and lots of other good stuff. So we're going to talk about everything from common issues that she sees as a psychologist in this area reasons that people do struggle with their sexuality and sex in general. We'll talk a little bit about open marriages, which I'm hearing more and more about and why I'm curious about that as well in this episode, but we're going to talk about it all. So without further ado, thank you for being here, Carolyn. My absolute pleasure. So happy to be here. So why don't we start off with A question that I'm dying to know the answer to. I mean, you really probably have heard so much in your years of practicing as a psychologist. What are some of the common issues or problems or roadblocks that people experience in regards to sex? Yeah, I can answer that in two ways. I would say the one that is almost universal in the clients that come to our office. And, you know, I always say to people, I see a biased sample of people who are coming into our office. They are open enough, but also struggling enough in their sex lives to come in. But it's also one of these things that when people find out at a party that I'm a sex therapist, either they say nothing further to me or they open up about their sex lives. I also get to hear about other people's sex lives all the time. And so I'll say it's pretty universal. It's not just in the clients that come to our office, but most people feel a huge amount of anxiety about sex. They feel sometimes shame. They sometimes have disgust and aversions. 
So there are often a lot of negative emotions that go along with something that we usually try and sell off as something that is so positive and so lovely all of the time. So that would be my first part is just the universality that because of the way that we educate about sex and because of the ways we talk or don't talk about sex, most people feel really uncomfortable with it for the most part. And then in our office, the most common things we're seeing are think concerns around desire discrepancies in couples, especially after baby and after children, after moving in. We see a lot of people are coming in with what they're calling sexual addiction or problematic sexual behaviors, behaviors that the partner finds concerning, lots around body image, lots around the effects of trauma on sexuality, lots of concerns about what their body is doing or isn't doing, or is it orgasming right? Are the erections happening right? All of that kind of stuff. And sometimes also a lot around infidelity. But those would be the main categories that we're seeing. So interesting when you started talking at the beginning about meeting people at a party and they either don't continue to talk to you or they open up and spill everything. I was thinking about, you know, how I would show up at that party. I would have a million questions about, you know, the types of people that you see, not wanting to know specific details or anything about these individuals, but like I'd have a million questions like I'm going to ask on this podcast, but I would tell you nothing about my own sex life. I already have said before coming on the show, this isn't an episode about me and my sex life. And that's interesting when I think about it, because I share everything on this show, like mental health, eating disorders, motherhood struggles. But that's an area where clearly there's been some lessons around like this is private. You don't talk about it. Obviously, I'm also keeping Scott in mind and his comfort level around that type of thing. But I'm curious for everyone who's listening right now, who would you be at that party if you met Dr. Klein? Would you be opening up? Would you have questions about her career in general? Or would you be beelining it to the bathroom in that moment? (laughs) So fascinating. I'm curious about the piece around body image, because as a health coach who works with women who are struggling in their relationship with food and their body, that is absolutely one of the number one things that I hear comes up is like, I want to feel more comfortable being intimate and I can only have sex with the lights off and I hate my body. What are you hearing in your office around that topic? Exactly that, that most people and especially women, but also men, that they really struggle with their bodies during sex. I mean, we struggle with our bodies enough outside of the bedroom. And now you're going to do it in the bedroom where, again, we don't get a lot of skills in how to be confident sexually anyway. And now you are going to be in all sorts of positions. You know, your face might be looking different. Everything's kind of different. Your hair might be disheveled. And so people's body image really comes up. And kind of one of the most interesting things that I try and sometimes impart to my clients is that body image is actually such a tiny piece of what turns a partner on. That's right now, I think, such a huge myth. And of course, it is perpetuated by things like Tinder, where, of course, people are swiping based only on appearance because that's all you have to go off of. But one of the most interesting things that I thought kind of happened that shook everyone's kind of beliefs a little bit was when amateur porn came on the market. So this sounds like a crazy divergence, but I'm going to link this to this topic because when amateur porn came on the market where bodies aren't the perfect societal ideal, where the lighting isn't perfect, where they're not editing and airbrushing it, you would have thought that amateur porn wouldn't do very well. And instead, amateur porn has completely outsold professional porn. So it became this question of why would people way prefer amateur porn where the bodies are not perfect over the professional porn where everything is exactly the way that we have said those are beautiful bodies. 
And the answer is because it's more believable, but not just that it's more believable, but what's more believable is the enthusiasm is more believable. And the number one turn on is enthusiasm. So of course, then the effect is that if you're conscious of your body during sex, you don't have space for enthusiasm. So now the sex is not hot and you might think, oh, it's because my body's not so hot, but it's actually because of the attitude you're bringing into the bedroom. So the big thing I'm trying to get my clients to think about is stop thinking that your body is so important. You're having sex with a partner, connect with them. Stop connecting to your anxieties about your body and connect more with them. Connect more with what you want and know that it is enthusiasm that will be by far the biggest turn on. And it won't matter if you have a role here and a role there. And if, you know, again, I know you've had some other people on your podcast in the past talking about sex and they've been opening. So it won't matter if you fart. It won't matter if you moan really loud, whatever it is, be enthusiastic, be present. Because that is what often is the number one ingredient for great sexual intimacy. Ooh, I love this. And when we think about what drives enthusiasm, well, you kind of mentioned it there. It's pleasure and it's what do you want? Think about what do you want? I don't think we've been given space, especially as women, to think about what we want. I mean, for me, for sure, it's always been about... What do they want? Like in the early years, how do I conform my body to look like what they want? How do I be that like sexy girl, the Victoria's Secret model in the lingerie with the pumped up boobs and like that whole look? How do I be what they want? And that's a message that women are given over and over and over again. It's interesting to provide space for people to start thinking about what do I want? What turns me on? And to be given permission to ask for that, that it's okay. I love what you're saying, Erin, and not just permission, but I would say like given the guidance that that's better sex. So if it's okay, I'm gonna make two comments about that. The first one is that in sex therapy, we actually really often talk about a term that afterwards I'll redefine when we talk about it with open relationships, because it might sound hypocritical, but that is that we say great sex is selfish sex. And what we mean by that is we don't mean sex that ignores or is disrespectful to your partner, but we mean sort of the analogy of like when you go for dinner with your partner, it would not be a good dinner date for you and Scott. If the whole time Scott were saying to you, Aaron, are you sure you like the restaurant? Are you sure you like the wine? Are you sure it's not too salty? Do you like the waitress? You'd be like, oh my God, chill out, chill out. But during sex, there's kind of like a similarity where people are like, are you going to come soon? Does this feel good? Are you sure this feels good? Do you like it like this? And it's like, okay, you've got to take the focus off the other person. I often say, if you sit in a movie theater with someone and you just feel like they're watching you the whole time to see if you're laughing at the right moments, you cannot relax and have a good time. And that was the second thing I was going to say. There's a lot of what I call sexual myths that get perpetuated that are so destructive to great intimacy. And one of those is the myth that a good lover is someone who knows how to please their partner. I think that's total garbage because it is up to the other partner to say what they like or not, you know? A good lover is someone who knows their own desires, what they want, what they're coming in for, knows how to be enthusiastic about it. And if they know how to do that and are role modeling that, and then the other partner can do the same, that's going to be some pretty hot, amazing sex for these two people versus sex that is all about serving the other, which is actually, again, not very intimate. It is much more based than in anxiety than it is in pleasure. Interesting. Oh, this is good. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. Friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you a over. How do you encourage people to figure out what they desire versus what society's told them sex should look like? <laughs> that is such a good question. And again, I've got a couple of parts to my answer. One is I don't think it's a static variable. I think what we like and want is going to keep changing. If you think about food, there was a time in my life I couldn't think of eating goat cheese, you know? And so it's the idea of you're going to try things in different ways, in different forms, and you're going to be open to over time recognizing that your body changes, that your mind changes and what might be appealing before you have children versus after you have children. You know, again, a concrete example would be that so many mothers before children might really enjoy the romantic, sweet kind of sex. Once you have children where there's always the romantic sweet, that is no longer hot and sexual for the brain. A lot of mothers now want to throw me on the bed and pull my hair and do it exactly differently than my children do because otherwise it feels way too familial, right? Yeah. And we don't have a lot of time here. So like, you're right. It does change what you want and desire completely changes. Absolutely. So I would say one is an openness to not thinking that the way it worked beforehand is the way it should work now. And I have so many couples who come in and when I ask them the detail what do they do sexually? They're doing the tried and true from 12 years ago, pre-kids. And it's not working anymore because they haven't recognized that actually that's going to change and continuing to do the same old actually becomes the old. So I would say one piece is just openness to knowing that there isn't one static answer of this is what I like and this is what I'm going to like sexually for the rest of my life. So the second piece is openness. We're going to talk about that maybe with open relationships as well. The idea of this is very kind of dear to my heart is People are terrified of being known sexually. 
You know, we want to know each other in relationships so much. We want to know what was your background? How did you grow up? What do you want to do in retirement? Where do you want to travel? But do we want to ask our partners, tell me how often you masturbate and what you fantasize to. And, you know, what are all the things that you would love to think about, but never actually do? There, it's like people don't want to know until an infidelity has happened. Then you start getting down into every detail, tell me everything. So a lot of times people are terrified of being known because they think that whatever it is that they're going to say is a judgment of their overall character. And what I always like to tell my clients is that sex is how adults play. So I have a daughter, she's turning eight next month. And when she plays with her friends, she does not play as if she is her. She plays that she is a teacher, that she is a superhero, that she is a princess. And in sexuality, it's the same thing. We have to recognize that in order for our heart to race, for us to feel sweaty and into it, we have to actually not think about mopping the kitchen floor, so to speak. We have to think about the things that actually are so different from our normal life. So this is what terrifies people. It's like, whoa, if my partner knew I liked this, but professionally I show up as this, what are they going to think of me? And so we need to get the message out there that actually. I can already predict what you like sexually is not going to be exactly the same as how you show up in your life. If you are very dominant and powerful in your life, you might love sex where you get to give up that power. And that doesn't mean anything about your character. This is your place to roam and be free and play. So I want people to let go of the judgment that they have to be afraid of who they are any more than no one judges people that they love to watch Tom Cruise blowing up stuff in Mission Impossible or (laughs) that they love to watch who knows what kind of stuff. No one judges and thinks, what does it mean about you that you like those shows? We know it's entertaining and sex is entertainment as well. I love that analogy of kids playing because I can relate to it so much as a parent watching my kids play and being Power Rangers and then being a princess and then being a dog. And you're not like, oh my God, my daughter thinks she's a dog. We've got to, you know, get her to therapy. No, she's using her imagination and she's having fun and she gets to play a different role. And so that's a really cool way of looking at it that adults still want that and desire that playtime when they can step out of their own role and the structure they've built around them as to who they are. And I mean, as you're talking about that, I'm like, it is wild to me, actually, how much of an impact media's portrayal of sex has truly had on me. Because I'm like, like, how many types of sex are there? And like, all these different roles, like, I've never really thought about that for myself. It's very much this ideal that's shown in movies where it's like a sexy woman and then there's like the tension and then they're in the bedroom and like there's maybe a moment where they're on the wall and then that sex. But what I'm hearing from you is like, that's one version of sex that is very limiting and really like there's a whole, whole, whole other world out there of. Yes. And how are you going to keep that tension that maybe happened in the first three, six months of your relationship? How are you going to keep that? You know, when you've known each other for 23 years and watched each other pee with the door open and watched each other, you know, have your head in the toilet throwing up, that's impossible unless you bring in other pieces to it. There is no way that you are going to get your heart racing. And I think that's the other piece. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about to people is about how desire works. Now we say that our brain treats sex the same as it treats everything else. Society just doesn't treat sex like it treats everything else. Right. So what I mean by that is, I always give people my sushi analogy is one of my favorite analogies. And I say to people that sushi is one of my favorite foods. And I say, if I get super lucky and I win a gift certificate from my favorite sushi restaurant, that they are going to bring me sushi every day for the next five years. It's my favorite restaurant, best sushi. I get it for five years. Guess what happens to my desire for it? 
it goes down because our brain really needs novelty in order to be excited about something. So now you put that into a long-term relationship where again, over time, most people were most creative sexually early on. They did it mm-hmm. in different rooms of the house, different locations. They didn't just leave it for the end of the night. They didn't brush their teeth, wash their face, lie in bed first, and then say, oh, now we should be sexual, you know, all <laughs> these kinds of things. So now you've kind of like whittled down the menu that there's only California rolls left and you're expecting to be super excited. Like you say, throwing up against the wall, it's not going to happen that way. We have to expand the menu. And that doesn't necessarily mean again, other partners. I know we're going to talk about that later. That doesn't mean that, but I do say to people, you have got to find ways to bring newness in because again, my daughter gets tired of playing with the same toys all the time. We get tired of doing the same thing all the time. So fascinating. Okay. So Let's talk a little bit about this piece around open relationships. And here's why I want to go there. Because when I first reached out to you to book this interview, it was right after the Academy Awards had happened. And there was the infamous Will Smith, Chris Rock slap. And what I found so interesting was that the slap that occurred stimulated a lot of side conversation about... Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith's marriage, and especially their open marriage. Like, look what she's done to him by demanding an open marriage. Look at what their relationship has become because of the open marriage. It was just so fascinating to me. And I was like, why is their sex life becoming part of this moment right now? And why is so much shade being thrown at her as the woman? Do we know for sure that she was the one who was really pushing for that or... Like, I don't know, they just brought up a lot of different thoughts and conversation. And so then I was hanging out with a mutual friend of ours and she's like, this is such a good conversation topic. And you know who you need to talk to is my good friend, Dr. Klein. She will have something to say on this topic. So that's sort of where this whole conversation started. And I want to talk about it because it's not a general conversation that people are having. And I think it's fascinating. I do think it's really fascinating. I do. You know, I, maybe where I want to start off, because some of my clients might hear this podcast as well. And I've got clients coming in somewhere. This is not even on their radar. We are talking about totally different things. Others where this is exactly what they're coming in to talk about. So I want to start off by saying, I do not have a strong opinion about whether people have open relationships and sex with other people or not. That part is actually irrelevant for me. The piece that is more relevant for me is twofold because one is dear to my heart, no matter what people are coming in for. One is, are they living in line with their values? And the other one is, are they really practicing really great intimacy? So I'll start with the values one. I watch a lot of people saying we are monogamous because that's in line with our values, but actually I would disagree with them because they will say that monogamy is a value, but monogamy is a behavioral choice. Values are are beliefs that help us to guide our behavior. So values might be things like, I believe that everyone has autonomy over their own body. Well, if you believe that everyone has autonomy over their own body, i.e. I believe that even if I maybe wouldn't make that choice for myself, I believe you have a right to have an abortion. Or even though I might not make that choice for myself, I believe you have a right to choose if you want to have medically assisted dying. Well, then shouldn't we also have, it may not be right for me, but I believe you have a choice over what you do with your body sexually. Mm, So if we say that that's our value, or if we say that actually one of our values is really trust, then it's interesting because people will say, well, I trust you as long as you live within my rules, you know, Mm. in order for me to trust you, you have to do the equivalent of, you have to make sure you don't drink kind of an idea. 
Because if you drink, I don't think I can trust you to behave yourself. I don't know if that's trust. So it's sort of like, I can trust you if you don't have sex with anyone else. Because if you have sex with someone else, now I won't trust you anymore that you'll still choose me, that you'll still come home to me. So people will say they value trust, but they're actually not extending trust to their partner to say, I trust you that no matter whether you drink or whether you have sex with other people, that you will make good decisions about that. I trust that you love me enough that you will come back to me. A lot of people, it's actually that they don't trust at all. And so they put this cage around it. And the other piece is as therapists, we often talk about this distinction between what we call wise mind and emotion mind. And emotion mind is that your decisions are really driven by emotion. So I watch a lot of people come in, they're like, I could never have an open relationship. I couldn't handle that. And I always think, okay, so that's emotion mind. I couldn't handle that. So therefore you shouldn't have opportunities in your life because I couldn't deal with it. I'm not sure if that's love to say, I love you so much that you better make sure I'm okay. Right. <laughs> and so I, again, don't care whether people actually have sex with other people or not. But I think that if we have the values of trust, if we have the values of honesty, autonomy over your body, growth, personal growth, then in some ways I would say, wouldn't that mean that you would extend to your partner that, hey, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to encourage that you do what is right for you respectfully with care. And I will not demand monogamy. I may choose to never have sex with anyone else and you may choose. And in fact, most people in open relationships are not always open. You know, they go through many times, whether it's due to a pandemic and not wanting to have others in the bubble or other reasons that they're not having sex with others. So I think non-monogamy gets associated with promiscuity. And I would say, I think that that's an unfair assumption. In fact, I think the term open relationship is a beautiful term because it means I am open to hearing your desires. I am open to sometimes challenging my own emotions when I get jealous, when I get hurt. I am open to your growth and your exploration and let's talk about how we can do that. You know, and I think Will was even saying this if I saw some of the quotes properly. He was saying like something like, I'm going to completely butcher his quote, but he was talking about like what better gift than to give someone trust and freedom. And I think Mm. that there's some real truth to that, that I just hope that people, if they're monogamous, it's because really that is in line with their values. And really it is that that's a choice that each person makes for themselves rather than a demand that they force on another person in order for them to not have to feel painful emotions. So it is a bit of a deconstruction to marriage, like the sanctity of marriage as marriage has been for so many years, because marriage, like traditionally, when you're looking at it from a religious standpoint, and I'm not religious, would say, no, 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 we're not having sex with other people outside of this marriage. Sure. But marriage also said you shouldn't have sex before marriage. And lots of people are willing to let that. (laughs) Totally, (laughs) totally. It's just interesting how we have been taught these things and certain ones have stuck like generally a lot of people aren't having sex outside of their marriage or it's considered infidelity and often destroys the marriage. But a lot of people now are like living with their partner before and having sex before getting married. So that's kind of fascinating to look at the psychology behind that and where we're at as human beings in our trust of one another, in our ability to really allow our partner's autonomy. And it's just fascinating. I totally agree with you. And I think people are kind of holding on to this last little piece, but it's interesting that many people would now, not all by any means, but many people would be like, 
yeah, look, I know my partner probably watches porn sometimes. Well, that wasn't part of a marriage once upon a time. Right. right. It was right. really the idea that you do not think about anybody else, that you do not masturbate, that you do not do any of those things. So we've shifted a whole bunch of things from yes. what was before. And the other piece is, you know, monogamy really, really made sense when there was no birth control. And when women did not have equality, and we still don't have perfect equality, but, you know, nowadays in the first world where we have access to birth control, all these things, it doesn't hold any more the same value that it did before, that before you really want to make sure that your partner wasn't having sex with other people because the man didn't want to be raising someone else's children. Yes. The woman didn't want to feel like you're going to have to now put resources to these other children you have with other women. There was a time and place where that made a huge amount of sense. And now the question is, in what way does it make sense for people? What does it actually provide the relationship that's really a positive versus what is it that it does because it leaves people more comfortable, but actually not necessarily being honest with each other, not necessarily actually saying, hey, what is really love? Mm, so interesting. Okay. If you're in an open marriage, I'm not in an open marriage, but fascinated in all topics and you had young kids I'm trying to think of logistically how this would work in that, like, there's already <laughs> no time for anything. Would you be saying to your partner, I'm going to go out tonight? And they're like, okay, that's cool. I've got the kids. And then they know that you've gone off to have sex with somebody else. And then you just like have coffee together in the morning. Like, what does that look like in a relationship? It looks different for every couple. So for some couples, it really is that they will say, yeah, listen, I want to know all of this. And I'm happy for you in the same way that I want to know when you go out with the boys and have your beers. And I want to know, like when you go out and have your hockey game, how'd the game go? And I'm happy for you. And I might sometimes have a bit of FOMO, but I'm happy for you. And I want to know. And just like telling the kids that daddy's going out to hockey, it's like, well, daddy's going out and seeing a friend tonight, you know? And right. I always say kids do not need to know anything about their parents' sex lives, whether it's monogamous or not. They don't, so just because people might have an open relationship, the children should never know about the sexual component because no child wants to know about their parents' sex life. That doesn't change. But then you go all the way down the spectrum to other couples where it is the don't ask, don't tell kind of an idea of, listen, I give you consent, but tell me whatever you want. Make it up. I don't really want to know. I support so much your freedom and your autonomy. I trust that you will not make decisions that will in any way put our relationship in jeopardy, but I don't really have an interest in hearing about it. In the same way that sometimes people might say, I don't mind if you want to go hang out with Johnny, but I don't want to hear about his drunken antics. I'm not interested in that. You know, some people just don't want to know. And so it's kind of the whole spectrum what people do there. Interesting. Okay. That makes total sense. And I guess it's the same in regards to if you're in an open relationship, are you and your partner still having sex together? I guess that would just depend on preference and the couple or the partnership as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've again had the pleasure of watching some couples where one partner is going through something like cancer, is going through huge things, but sexuality has always been an important part of the relationship or of the other partner's quality of life. And the partner says, hey, just because right now I have zero desire, I am in pain, I feel ill, we're not going to have sex, I love you go kind of almost like sometimes you'll hear people say like if a one partner has Alzheimer's disease, right? It's like, do you then just have to give that up completely? Yeah. Or is there again so much trust that you will show up for me when I need you that I'm going to let you go? So I've watched some partners where they don't have sex anymore for any number of reasons. And it really is the idea of we're not doing this because I'm not good enough for you, but we're doing this because we value sexuality as part of your quality of life. Yeah. And I trust you enough. So for some, they don't have sex. 
Or for some, I've also had those couples where they just say, you know, we're honest enough with each other. The kind of sex you want to have and the kind of sex I want to have, they don't jive very well. So it's not very hot and we can do it, but why have mediocre sex? So why don't we go and have great experience with other people? And then we come back and we are so happy because we haven't lost that part of ourselves. And then you've got other couples where going out leads them to have the hottest sex of the night. You know, they come back completely energized. So it is the whole spectrum. Oh, I love it. I feel like these conversations are so important to just open the doors to possibility. And again, like we're not really seeing this in why does media tend to showcase like one type of sex? Why do you think that is? Obviously, it's not one type and there's lots of different kinds of media if we were to include porn and things like that. But in everyday media that we're watching, why is it confined to such a box? I don't know that I have a great answer for that because I wish that they would move away from it. I think some of it has been because that's selling and media is going to do whatever sells. So if that is a good kind of way to make money, they're going to keep doing that same thing. I think another one is that for many people, there just is so much shame and fear that they right away shut the door to anything there. You know, to have this kind of conversation that you and I are having, For many people, I couldn't even have that conversation with them because they would right away think, why would you want to destroy what we already have? Why would we have to talk about this? This just seems selfish. You know, there'd be so many assumptions that would go into it. So I think some of it is that we still are very judgmental society, as we know from talking about body image. And we've kind of have very narrow ideas about what is healthy sexuality and what is a healthy relationship. And people sometimes feel a lot of fear to think about even approaching that subject. And I guess that would be my big thing for people. Again, I don't care if people ever have sex with anyone else outside their marriage, but the idea of at least having open conversations with your partner of saying, hey, what for you is freedom? What for you are desires that maybe we'll never fulfill? What would you ever want? To know that is real intimacy, is real caring. So I really do encourage people to talk about open relationships, just like I encourage them to talk about, do they want to have children and to talk about when the in-laws get old, are you going to let them move in or not? You know, intimacy is talking about everything and sometimes it's not comfortable, but I definitely don't want to give the message that I'm trying to convert my clients to have open relationships and have sex with other people. That part again is irrelevant. No, I'm not getting that idea at all. And I think it's so important to have these conversations to just open up and blast apart outdated belief systems that we may have, whether or not this is something that you're open to or not. I think oftentimes people can have this very black and white thinking around things. And then we see something like the Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith thing come up. And then all of a sudden you really see that black and white thinking and the judgment towards people and everybody's perspective getting thrown out. And I really truly believe for most topics of conversation, (laughs) there is a massive amount of gray area. There's no black and white. It really is about understanding different perspectives and hearing your definition of an open relationship. I'm like, that's so beautiful and supportive and life-giving for people. I mean, it's really cool. It's interesting because part of me definitely has that feeling around it. Like I couldn't do that. I couldn't handle that emotionally. Like too much jealousy would come up. So then where I go with those feelings that come up in me is that's so interesting that those are there remaining in a place of curiosity and self-compassion. That's so interesting that those feelings come up. And is that really the truth of how it would look? And is there room within that kind of constricted feeling that comes up 
for more expansion. Like that's probably an area where there's room for me to continue to grow and expand and find more love and more overall compassion and trust and to continue to open. So anytime we feel that constriction around something or a bit of tightening or closing off, it's always an invitation for more growth. And again, this isn't about getting to some destination like an open relationship. It's just continuing to evolve as human beings little bit by little bit by little bit. So that's what I hope that everyone's doing, you know, on their own as we have all of these conversations on the show. I want to talk a little bit about something that I'm hearing so much of in this period of life that I'm in right now. My friends and I all have young kids. And everywhere from like pregnant right now to my son's the oldest of the group, seven. So sort of seven to zero. Pregnancies, anxiety, just packed schedules. A lot of entrepreneurs in the group who are trying to grow their businesses. And it's just like everyone is so (laughs) stretched thin. And we have a lot of conversations about our sex lives and the ups and downs of that, like the moments when you, when it's back on, like someone's gone for a vacation and then you're just in the midst of it and it feels like you're not finding that time to connect. Is this common or is this just my group of friends? It is not just your group of friends. It is so common. I think one of the myths is that if you love your partner and if you find your partner attractive, you should have desire for them. Right. I hear that all the time, both ways, you know, like if I've had a heterosexual couple, you know, if the man is struggling with his erections, then oftentimes the woman says, does he not love me? Is he not attracted to me anymore that he doesn't have erections? If she has low desire, is she not attracted to me anymore? Does she not love me anymore? As if those are the only two ingredients needed to have energy and desire for sex. But again, our brain treats sex like everything else. So if you are like me, where the last three months have been super crazy in my life professionally and otherwise. And so it's meant that I haven't been seeing my friends as often. And it's meant that I haven't been exercising as often. And that some nights I'm like, okay, I do not have time to do this thing I want to do. I am exhausted. And all I want to do is crash into bed. Well, then sex is going to go into the same category, no matter how much you love your partner and how hot they are. So I think we, again, have to recognize that sexuality is going to ebb and flow and that there are going to be times where both partners are beautifully matched. Like sometimes going on vacation, all the context is so beautifully in place. And then there are going to be lots of times where one person is going to really miss it and really want that connection intimacy. And the other person is in a totally different space and is being energized by other things. Right. And, and that flow and then being able to talk about that is just a normal part of relationships. So that sounds completely normal to me. So good to hear that. And I think you're exactly spot on in that everything in life is impermanent and everything is changing. And so we can't have this expectation that we're always just going to be there. We're working with somebody else in this area as well. So it's like two different sets of energy, two different sets of focus. I mean, to me, I think one of the things that's really important for us is the communication around it. It's just being able to talk about how we're feeling touch base as to like where one another is at in regards to it and feeling like there's space for that without a lot of judgment or anything. Fully agree with you. How much sex should we be having? (laughs) I was wondering if you would ask that question because it's one of the most asked questions I get. The answer is I have no idea in the sense that the research doesn't give us an answer for that because there are some couples who are having lots of sex and it's terrible sex and it serves them no good purpose. It is doing harm, quite frankly. And we have other couples who are having zero sex 
for any number of reasons, and they are so close and connected. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a few variables to take into consideration. The first is how important is sexuality to each partner's quality of life? And again, that is going to change over your lifetime. Just like at some points in your life, going to the bar might've been really important to your quality of life. And now it may not be, you know? Yeah. So, so it's also, again, not a static variable. Sexuality might be really important at some points, or there are those people where sexuality is important and it always has been, and it probably always will be. And others where they'll say, you know what? Sex was never a big driving force for me. So that's kind of one important variable. And the second one is what other means of connection do a couple have? Is sexuality the way that they connect? the way that they don't feel like they're roommates, et cetera. Well, then it's going to be really important that they keep it up quite regularly. But it's almost like saying, well, how important is it that a family eats a meal together? Well, some people are going to say it's super important, but others are going to say, you know what? That part's not important because we go to every baseball game that our kids have together. We always do bedtime together. You know, to put it all in one basket that it's the amount of sex is actually completely irrelevant. And it tells me nothing about how connected and how intimate a couple actually is. Because I always say sometimes sex is the least intimate thing a couple does because partner A is up in their head thinking, does my body look fat? Do, do I sound weird when I orgasm? Is this happening? Partner B is thinking, oh my God, I have so much to do tomorrow. Like they're not, it's not even intimate at all. They're not connected with each other. They're again, connected more to their own anxieties, their own fears. So I want people to let go of the idea that there's a right amount of sex, but it definitely back to what you said a moment ago, communicate and check in with your partner. Is the amount of sex we're having right? How do we define a sexless marriage? For us, is a sexless marriage not having sex every week or is it not in a year or not in 10 years? And when is it for us a sign that we've got to do something about it because it means something for us? Mm, I love that. Those are such important questions. I'll actually pop those in the show notes because I think that's a great takeaway from today's episode and just a starting point to explore what sex means to you. And I'm also going to put some questions in around sexual desires. Maybe you can help me with those and just some journal prompts for everyone to get you thinking about some of these topics in relation to yourself. I could talk to you about this for another five, six, eight hours. So I would love to have you back on the show. I'm curious for everyone who's tuned in right now, if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have, if you've learned a little bit or maybe opened your mind, heart to different ways and different possibilities of people being in partnership with one another. I think anytime we have a greater understanding of different ways of being and living, it just is supportive to all of us in such a really incredible way. Thank you for taking the time to be here and to share your incredible breadth of knowledge with all of us. Not at all, Erin. I just want to throw that back and just say, like, I sort of feel like you have been challenging people's ideas about beauty and trying to push their away from what the media has put out there. So even though I'm doing it in a different domain, I just have so much respect for the work you're doing as well. And I kind of see it that we're sort of in similar paths, you know, again, and topics might be a bit different, but the idea of like the images, the messages that are out there are not helping people. And how do we challenge those? How do we think more critically? So it is such an honor to be on your show. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Just breaking apart boxes and everyone who's listening is joining us on that journey. So thank you for being here. Take a screenshot of this episode, share it with a partner, share it with your girlfriends and keep the conversation going. We can't thank you enough. Take what resonated with you from this conversation, leave the rest behind, and I will see you next week. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app, and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. 
Join the Robbie Detox community at Robbie Detox. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.